this week on the Backtable Podcast. One of our main goals was to increase broader adoption and knowledge of this and for pain palliation. So it was really a simple, prospective, single-arm trial. Is international. I think we had four European sites, many out of France, looking at people with painful single bone metastasis and treating with cryoablation. We enrolled very similar to the mass trials in the 60s, like 66 or something like that. And we took it out for six months. The primary objective was greater than two-point reduction of pain score. And then we looked at opioid use, quality of life, and like I said, carried it out for six months. But the, you know, the big impetus was also to just reinvigorate this more global, broader adoption of it because it's a need. And you and I have talked about this multiple times. We just need to get more and more people doing this. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Boston Scientific Interventional Oncology and Embolization is a global provider of medical devices. Boston Scientific's goal is to become the leading partner by enabling and developing minimally invasive procedures. Boston Scientific recently received 510K approval for expanded indication of the visual ice cryoablation system for palliation of pain associated with metastatic lesions involving bone in patients who have failed or are not candidates for standard radiation therapy. As the only manufacturer with this indication on label for cryoablation in the United States, Boston Scientific remains dedicated to supporting the further growth of cryoablation technology in order to provide expanded treatment options for patients. Now, back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Backtable MSK podcast. This is your host, Jacob Fleming. And today I'm back here with legendary interventional musculoskeletal radiologist, Jack Jennings. Dr. Jennings, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back to the show. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the conversation. Yeah, always enjoy our conversation, and I always appreciate you taking your time away from your extensive clinical duties, extracurricular duties, and small family of 9 to 15. So thank you, as always, for making the time, and today we're really looking forward to the conversation, talking to you about a field you have really helped push forward, which is cryoablation for bone mets. And we discussed this a little bit last time on our episode on desmoids a little more than a year ago, but we're really going to focus in this time and talk about the results of the motion study and the implications for this. And so, first of all, let's just jump in and tell a little bit about the motion study, a brief intro about what was done. And then, more generally, why cryoablation for bone mets? What was the impetus for looking at this? And give us a lowdown on the trial. Gotcha. So, you asked me a lot of things there. I'll start with the kind of the overview. Matt Colstrom, Damien Dupuy, and a few of my other great colleagues did a prospective trial similar to this in 2013, maybe. It was published in Cancer. And so now you take it another eight years from there. And our goal was multifold. People are living longer. It's about 1.9 million people have cancer, diagnosed with cancer every year. People are living longer, and thus they're getting bone metastasis. And one of our main goals was to increase broader adoption and knowledge of this and for pain palliation. So it was really a simple, prospective, single-arm trial. Is international. I think we had four European sites, many out of France, 
looking at people with painful single bone metastasis and treating with cryoablation. We enrolled very similar to the mass trials in the 60s, like 66 or something like that. And we took it out for six months. The primary objective was greater than two-point reduction of pain score. And then we looked at opioid use, quality of life, and like I said, carried it out for six months. But the, you know, the big impetus was also to just reinvigorate this more global, broader adoption of it because it's a need. And you and I have talked about this multiple times. We just need to get more and more people doing this. And equally to get the NCCN guidelines and guidelines to promote this. And as you've seen, we talked about this last time, we made a lot of leaps and jumps with it, come to NCCN guidelines in ablation for pain palliation. The other question said, why cryo? Well, cryo, we we do a lot of in bone for many reasons. One, you can see the ice ball. Now, when I say that when it's dense bone, you don't see it within the bone, but you can see it extending beyond the bone. Two, it's a modality that we can sculpt. We can make geometries that you can't make necessarily with some of the heat-based thermal ablations. And people are, typically it's less painful. Matt's group published that trial, RF versus cryo as far as pain from the procedure. And finally, when we are, I think we're going to talk about this, when we are close to nerves and other structures, they are much more forgiving with ice than they are with some of our heat-based modalities. So that's kind of a 30,000 overview of why cryo and bone. Absolutely. And thank you for that explanation. And the motion study really is very impressive. And as you said, there's really the all-star cast. I was looking at, I was kind of thinking this is the Avengers of musculoskeletal interventional oncology. It's just a really impressive cast of clinicians who participated in this from all around the world. And one of the things that really struck me was just how many different bone metastasis sites there were. There obviously were some recurrent ones, but this is quite different from some of the other studies that have focused uh, more so on spine ablation. In this study, the most common index tumor location was actually in the rib in about 24% of patients and a smattering of all over. And so one thing I wanted to touch on is bone mets, of course, can show up anywhere. There are places where they are more common, and some of these have their own kind of consternation associated with them. For example, ribs can really be difficult in some ways. And so one thing I was kind of curious about, not necessarily limited just to the trial, but your experience blading a lot of these lesions. Tell us about some of these recurrent sites, such as rib or ilium and maybe some of the particular challenges that come up with those? Yeah, so one caveat, one thing I will tell you. So spine is the number one site of metastatic disease, which I think you were kind of alluding to. Cryo is done less in the spine for many reasons. A, you've got the spinal cord and nerves, and I call it the silent killer, meaning even under conscious sedation, you can take out a nerve or the spinal cord versus heat, much more thermotoxic, and patients under conscious sedation will not allow you. So if you look at all this spine metastatic trials, treating those with thermal ablation, radiofrequency ablation is number one, hands down. In fact, that's the first modality that got us even ablating anything with osteoblastomas. So this trial, very few spine, and there's a reason for that because it's not a great trial. Those are very complicated, and that goes to answering your question about complicated. Now, so pelvis is the number two site of metastasis. So not surprising that if you take sacrum, pelvis, ischium, all those in there, that would, I don't remember all the numbers, but they would for sure add up to be number one. And ribs is very common. These chest wall, pearl-based lung, whether it's 
primary lung or metastatic lung, those are very common metastases and ones that we ablate. And we're also taking out the intercostal nerve. I know you've had, I believe you've had Prologo on here, right? Given his nerve spiel, for sure, my good friend up on the pulpit. So, but, so you're really doing a double good thing. You're treating the MEP as you're taking out that intercostal nerve, which helps with that chest wall pain. So if I were to give the most challenging, it's anywhere near a nerve. So I do use cryo pretty consistently in the posterior elements of the spine or when there's paraspinal soft tissue. And with those, I use evoke potentials. And I think we talked about that, your passive and active thermoprotective techniques. And then posterior acetabulum, the sciatics right there. So that's another cautionary place. So really, those are the ones that I find the most challenging. Anybody can put a needle in any of these places. It's staying out of trouble. And that's what I find the most challenging. So yeah, I'm not surprised. We kind of endorsed doing real world stuff and this is real world stuff. One point I would make, and you can correct me on this because I don't have it in front of me, but it was a huge number of, it was close to 60% were greater than four centimeters. (laughs) So big lesions. So, you know, I think it was greater than four centimeters or more. It was two thirds of them. So that's real life. That's less than ideal. (laughs) because we would love to catch these before, but this is all part of getting this message out to our oncology colleagues and whatever. But So these were real lesions. These weren't like chip shot, one, two centimeter ditzels. These were big boys. And if you've got it in front of you, I think greater than four centimeters is close to like 60 some percent, right? If you... Yeah. The mean size is actually 5.7. So pretty, pretty impressive. And with a large standard deviation, yeah, about 60% or more than four centimeters. So these are serious metastatic lesions. But I think the fact that it was kind of skewed so far in that direction, and the patients really did quite well with this. And could you just briefly summarize for us again, kind of the results of this and and how patients did, how how this helped out? Yeah. So we used BPI short form worst pain as the primary endpoint. And we showed durability because out to six months, patient had significant pain relief. Now, with a 95% confidence interval, we picked eight weeks because we've done eight weeks for multiple other trials. You notice we just missed it by like 0.2, whatever. I don't think that's the key. The key thing is, so we had significant greater than two-point reduction all the way throughout. But if you take the 95th confidence interval, we were like minus 1.78. So just missed it at the eight weeks. But then everything after that was within the 95% confidence interval, which is what you want durable, significant pain relief. And so the graph kind of goes, you know, like this and then all the way down and stays significant out to the six weeks. And then as we're looking at the morphine equivalent, there's very similar, the graphs. If you take pain and quality of life, they're both doing the same thing, significant decrease throughout the six month interval. And that's the thing that, why I brought up the size. So these were real lesions. With our trials, everybody wants you want to be smart because you're trying to do a message. You're not trying to, how do I say that, manipulate the trial, but there's people that are good study candidates and those who are not. But you see here, these were big lesions. And I find with the bigger lesions, now we did do a univariate multivariate analysis. The size did not impact whether those people were still you know, at eight weeks or not. But that being said, from my experience, the bigger lesions, it takes people some time to start feeling better. But Anyway, so yeah, if you look at all those three 
the primary and secondary endpoints, it, they were significant throughout the six months. Absolutely. I think it's very impressive. And, and as we know with these patients with bone metastatic lesions, they can really fall down the wrong path very quickly. And it's always heartbreaking to me to see, have a patient come in who has been dealing with something for months and months and something that we really could have helped out sooner. But now they're on increasing doses of opioids, just trying to get it through the day and they're in a really tough spot. It always seems to me that the earlier we can get to handling these problems, the better. But as you said, and this is the real world, it's not always going to be on a silver platter at the tumor board, one centimeter solitary bone met. <laughs> I think that's probably a much more rare situation than probably what was described in the study here. But I do think the good news is it's changing. We now are getting asked earlier on, and that is a testament, I believe, to what you guys are doing, what everybody's doing, Society of Intervention Oncology, SIR, everybody, you know, name them all, Cersei, just getting the message out, these podcasts, as I said, I think more and more people are doing it in these OBLs and not just at the, quote, ivory towers. And that's to me why I love what actually you all are doing and what everybody getting the message out. And we are seeing much smaller lesions. And so it's, I think we're making ground for sure. For sure. Yeah. I've been really excited to hear about more and more people in the community setting who are starting to build up cryo programs and doing away with the notion, like you said, that this is just sort of an ivory tower practice. These patients are everywhere. And there've been a lot of people who have been successful setting up and taking care of these patients in their community, whether that's in an academic setting or somewhere more like a private practice setting. And so that's been really nice. One thing in regards to the size of the lesions that this brings up, and you mentioned a moment ago, is the sculpting techniques with making your lesions. And this is something I find really fascinating with cryo. And also from a planning standpoint, definitely presents a bit of a cerebral challenge. So I was just kind of wondering, could you just tell us about your general approach with choosing the number and the type of probes that you're going to do? There's a lot of different kinds of probes, ice, ice force, ice X, ice so on and so forth. How do you kind of go about choosing from the quiver, what you're going to be using. I'm an ice force man. If you were going to talk Boston, it, it's a bigger gauge needle. And I really, the beauty is you can dial it down, right? You can 100% equals 100% of the time the gases are at their probably over 5,000, 3,000 PSI. And then if you dial it down, that's basically, okay, so 70% means seven out of 10 seconds, it's on, right? You can't, you don't do percent gas. It doesn't work that way. For the jewel tops. So my point being is, except yesterday I did a desmoid that was, people must think I only do desmoids, but I will tell you, it was six centimeters cranial caudal by like two and a half centimeters. So I used the ice pearl and again, it's a 2.1. So it's a bigger, and I, you know, we did, I think it was a four probe case, but I like the ice force. I feel like with any of them, I can dial down, but I do use all of them. You know, it's just nice and tougher tissue to use that bigger gauge needle. That's the other beautiful thing with your cryo is it covers a multitude of sins. You're a fellow. We got fellows and there's nothing more than attendings love to blame everything on the fellows, but you got less than quote ideal needle placement. I don't get too bent out of shape. Now you keep to some rules, the bigger ices can be about two centimeters away. The smaller probes, meaning the smaller size ice balls, you want to be about 1.5 centimeters away. And that's for both companies. That's a principle. 
So as long as you stay with that, you'll see it. And I'll go past the 10 minutes. They used to tell you, oh, at 10 minutes, it doesn't get bigger. That's a bunch of nonsense. I'll sometimes carry out the 15 minutes when you're seeing the ice ball grow and never had issue with it. So it's the visualization and knowing kind of the planning is coverage, keeping those rules of the tour, 20 millimeters, 15 millimeters distance and just letting the ice work for you. But it's very nice. And it's not impedance-based, so we don't have to worry about that. What you do have to worry about, it does blow through a cortex. <laughs> so Sure. <laughs> <laughs> One of the double-edged swords of the technique. And, of course, you mentioned already something we talked about quite at length in our last discussion, which is these neuroprotective techniques. And just for folks who haven't listened to our prior episode, could you tell us just a little bit about the CO2 dissection and hydrodissection techniques that you do under CT? Sure. I did it just yesterday. I saw the patient early this morning. She's doing well. So this was a rectus abdominis lesion. So bowel is the issue there. Is if you're doing a vertebral body or posterior element, obviously it's a spinal cord next to nerve roots. And then if you're in the pelvis, sciatic, femoral nerve, all those. So we have passive thermal protection. And what is that? That's where I'll bring out the evoke potentials, motor and somatosensory evoke potentials to look for dropout and decrease amplitude and increase, they got to give increased wattage to stimulate the nerve. So we, we do that. That's passive. We can put a thermocouple to measure temperatures. And then active is what you were alluding to in the sense of we can do hydroneumodissection. Yesterday, we used 0.5 mLs of contrast per 10 mLs of D5W. And basically in the perineal cavity, injecting. And then we did CO2. Now, the CO2 didn't go where I wanted to, so that's why you got to see what it's going to do. And basically, with that contrast solution, we created, so the bowel was up against, she was not a real big person, and so the bowel was up against the abdominal wall, and obviously, you don't want to cry that. So we displaced it with, and you can see with the contrast, and then with the contrast, you can see the ice ball extending into that contrast, so you know your gap. We do it for skin as well. We do it epidural. I'll use contrast intrathecally like a myelogram, so then I can see ice bulk sending into the canal and also for displacement. So as was the case yesterday, I spend longer doing that than putting down the probes for the, but you're not doing them a great favor. You treat the lesion and now they come out with a new nerve injury. Those of us who've done this a lot have surely had that happen, not purposely. So I pull out all the stops. And as CO2 in the spine, typically once you get above mid-thoracic, because it goes up in the noggin. We don't like to use it. We use the hydro or cooling. So with heat-based, I'll use D5W, slow push, cooling in the epidural space. And then I use evoke potentials anywhere I'm worried about nerves, which obviously means they'll have to be under GA. And for the actual needles, getting a little bit into the nitty-gritty, the needles you use for uh, hydrodissection or pneumodissection, you're using like a 22-gauge, 18-gauge TUI in the epidural space, and just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so if it's non-cryo, a 22 is just fine. For cryo, I use 18 gauge because they will freeze up. Because a lot of times your needles are close to where the ice fall, and that happened actually yesterday. We had a little plug. We had to pop out because we were, one of the 18 gauges right there. So cryo, mostly 18 gauge spinal needles, and then microwave or RF. I just use a 22 because it's easier, but I'm not worried about it freezing up. But you will see that with cryo. And just remember, 
No saline with the RF because it creates a plasma field if you're so use that T5W when you're using RF just to be safe. Yes. <laughs> we don't need uh, more <laughs> plasma than necessary in our cases. Yeah. So that's good. <laughs> well, just your ablation zone gets a little not predictable, right? So that's the issue with that. Gotcha. And talking about the imaging guidance on these cases, I know you're a big CT proponent and using ultrasound as well in some cases here. And just tell us about kind of your your procedure suite for a typical cryoablation case for a MET case. What's, what's sort of the setup like? Do you always have the ultrasound ready to go and patient you alluded to usually being under sedation and just kind of the setup the day of? Yeah, so depending on the case, longer cases, I pretty much will always do GA these days. And predominantly with cryo CT guided so I can see or cone beam CT. The problem is, well, you can see. It's just not as great a CT as my procedural CT. Ultrasound, I've got to make a decision. If I'm close to the skin and want to use ultrasound, then I can't use CO2 because obviously that's <laughs> chaos slash CO2 slash air doesn't equal good ultrasound. So where I will use ultrasound over CO2 are in the extremities. Some of these feet, whether it's neuromas or we had a sarcoma there recently where I'm getting really close to the skin. So then I'll forego the CO2 and just do hydrodissection. And then I put the ultrasound probe because then you see the low, the hypoechoic ice ball going close to the skin. But I'm a big proponent of not so much, not always in these cases, but for biopsy cases, all these, I'm a big I've got the ultrasound in the CT room, like a proponent of doing both. Francois Cornelius, he will do some of these rib cryos with ultrasound, which I think is pretty cool. I don't, but Francois has some nice pictures of those. So surely ribs, you know, if you're out on the fluffy side and, you know, you don't have a lot of ribs, ultrasound cryo for bone, so it's bone, would be just fine, you know, because he sets it right up next to the bone. So, and also you can see the ice ball growing towards the skin. And then in the room, you've got the electrophysiology people. It's a crowded room. And then you've got the anesthesia people. Occasionally, I can convince them to do MAC, which patients are always appreciative of. But the ones that are going to be three hours long, it's not unreasonable just to do GA. And then if they're obviously with evoke potentials, they can't paralyze them because you're evoking motor potentials. So they, they can't do the, the paralyzing. But and then, you know, this, we don't have one yet, which we're going to in the new tower, the CT on rails or the combined hybrid, which maybe that's how we'll get our old friend Doug getting into the uh, <laughs> 2023. We'll get have to get one of those. But, you know, that's having a sole fluoroscopic fellowship. There's benefits of both. And there's nothing, I mean, I was trained by Lou Galula, so I'm very fluoro trained. And so I like comb beam. It's just comb beam. To get those spins is not where, and there are newer units that are coming out for sure that are much better. So that's where the kind of those hybrid units with the CT on rails offers kind of the best of both worlds. Absolutely. I agree with that. I have a lot of envy for those systems gotten to use a couple times, but I'll tell you, there's nothing more frustrating than being ready to take a, a spin. And then the machine starts telling you, does not compute, does not compute because of the, the positioning or whatever. Uh, it's hitting oh the gosh. drape. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone listening to this has, has had that experience at some point. So, 
And again, Cone Beam CT is super versatile, has, has so many uses, but yeah, the, the hybrid Angio CT approach, I think it really works particularly well in a lot of these situations, especially in maybe some of the more complex ones where our vascular colleagues might be doing an embolization of like an RCC met first. And, and so of course you need that, really need that multimodality. One thing that has been coming out as I'm sure you know, and I wanted to get your thoughts on is the notion of the robotic guidance systems. I think that's something that's really interesting in, in IO. I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were and have you had any experience trying out any of those systems? Yeah, so have not had experience, but done a lot of talking with industry. And I guess the first statement is it's our future, right? The younger neurosurgeons, especially those that train to Hopkins, are using robotics and augmented reality. So it, it's the future. So I think we as radiologists, interventionalists have to stay with the future. And this goes from robotics to all the image guidance, right? To all the pre-procedural planning, intra-procedural navigation, post-ablation confirmation, and robotics. I think the whole package we're going to see in the next decade be part of a lot of people's suites. What I've seen as far as kind of my stick with the bone and stuff, robotics isn't quite there because, you know, you got to get through some hard stuff. So there are some limitations right now, but that's short term. They're mostly geared towards the soft tissue guidance right now, but you know, I think it's wicked cool. I, I'm getting to be the old man. So it's easy to say, oh, well, I, <laughs> we just put the needle in and got there. You know, we're a Malacrotz and this isn't a plug kind of a Siemens place, but there's some image guidance stuff on there. And some of the younger faculties like, I want you to use it. And I was kind of, I don't know. And now guess who uses it? Just for not just the guidance as much, but for reasons like I'll put it at the level of the spine, maybe their counting issues. So then I don't have to keep recounting. I'm a big fan of it. Some of our Greek colleagues, Alexis Kalikius and Demetrius Philippiatis, they've been doing more and more with that as well. And Fred Deschamps and Terry DeBear at their place, Gustav Rossi. So it's our future. It'll be there. So I'm also excited that our imaging partners are collaborating with this, you know, whether you're GE, Siemens, Philips, they're getting more and more in this space. So, yeah, no, I'm super excited. Me too. I'm really excited to see where that'll be in the next five years. I think we're, we're kind of at the toe of the curve right now, maybe the early toe, and I think we'll see some really interesting stuff. And I find it super interesting as well because through uh, LinkedIn or whatnot, I follow a bunch of different people. So I see a lot of things from kind of a spine surgery standpoint, just because I'm very interested in that. And they're embracing robotics in a lot of different areas right now that it's super interesting. And so it's, it's really kind of the same goal, but then they come at it from a slightly different situation and using slightly different systems. And so easy enough to say, okay, well, you know, you can use navigation with, you know, an O-arm spin for putting in pedicle screws for a big fusion case. So you can just do the same thing with IO, right? But then there's actually, there's slightly different considerations. And one of the things we've run into is we've started experimenting with this stuff for SI fusion cases. And there's something about just the lateral hammering on the ilium and the sacrum from lateral. Things just don't really stay in place. And so there's some little futzing around with that. And Tony Brown talked about this at one point that doing these complex IO cases under hybrid angio CT is, or even if you're just using the comb beam CT, sometimes the kind of augmentation with the overlay with the flora will get kind of knocked out of whack when you're <laughs> vigorously 
trying to get a bone needle in place by hammering on stuff. So there, there are certain things that we have to kind of figure out and make sure that the navigation is right on. Because if the navigation is, quote, only off by three millimeters, I mean, that three millimeters could make the difference between being in the sacral foramen and the sacral body. Right, or in the <laughs> canal. And, and just a plug for Tony Brown, he's kind of the poster child for OBL out there. And Tony has done, he really has shown what can be done out there. For all you out there who are in OBL, I'm offering him as a resource. <laughs> and Tony loves to... <laughs> Tony has done great things, and he's a great example of how you can work with orthopedic oncologists or orthopedists in an OBL and do some of this higher-end MSKIO. So anyway, that was purely off script, but uh, Tony, yeah, for all you out there, Tony's a great role model for that. And another plug that I'm on this, this year at SIO, there's a new private practice on Monday for people who are in OBLs and Vijay's done a great job with this program. So that's another push these words. <laughs> it really is. It's a great program for private practice people and people like Tony are going to be there speaking. And, and I think it'll be a, a wealth of knowledge. Jason Levy, another one. Sonny Bagla. These are all people out there that are doing stuff where it's not off script, meaning we're do stuff that we do here talking about today that can be helpful that, as I said, aren't in the quote, Ivy Prowess tertiary referral centers. So Anyway, I don't know how you got me on that. I complete frontal release on you there. But anyway. No, that that was perfect because I, I actually wanted to talk about that eventually. And you predicted it and wanted to put in a plug for the upcoming SIO meeting, which will be in January. Uh, it's the 25th through the 29th. And you mentioned the private practice symposium that's going to be on the last day of the conference. I think this is going to be something that's really excellent. And I'm glad we mentioned Tony Brown as well, because he is kind of the example that I always use when I tell people about these things I'm really excited about. And even from mostly people within our own specialty, they'll say, ah, well, there's there's no future for that outside of the ivory towers. And it's like, I mean, look at this guy doing it. And there are several others who have really done it well. And being able to take these techniques to seem arcane and esoteric and showing, yeah, you can do it in an office-based lab with a comb beam CT, really powerful. And of course, OBL is not the only situation. There's always going to be context in which you need to have the bigger hospital cases. I mean, you're not going to be doing a three hour long GA case, obviously, in the OBL, but more and more of the stuff is it's becoming readily apparent that we can and we really need to scale this down and get it out into the community, just like we've ranted to each other about in the past. <laughs> yeah, I know. Tud just told me two days ago that Tony can do three of these screw fixation cases in a day. So that tells you right there. So wow. I'm just saying, and I get it, Tony's been doing it, but that just shows you that everybody out there, this can be done and there's a lot more resources than there were a decade ago. And you're going to see these people at that private practice symposium. And another push, since we're talking about cryo, so it's not a stretch, there's a breast cryoablation course. This is another, I don't know if you guys done one of this, but it's a super hot topic. And you know, there's a lot of growth in this and treating these T1A lesions. So yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff for this SIO in Long Beach and Jacob's going to be there at IO Essentials for you trainees out there. If you didn't get in this year, next year, it's just going to be a great meeting. I feel like every year it just keeps building and, and getting better. And But anyway, I'll stop my push, yeah. my plug. Yeah, well, perfect. <laughs> I wanted to make sure we got into that and make sure that everyone knows that SIO is coming up. It's going to be awesome meeting. And so look forward to seeing everyone there. 
taking a selfie with Dr. Jennings himself. And if you come up and see me, heckle me as well. And we'll be there nerding out about all things cryo and otherwise interventional oncology. It'll be a great meeting and really looking forward to seeing the speed and the momentum and this continue to take off. Dr. James, that's all I have today. I think this is a great summary just about cryoablation in general and talking about the motion study, arming our listeners with some knowledge to go out there and really start things up. Any final thoughts, anything else you wanted to discuss before we close up? This is kind of a plug out to all of our industry partners, the relationships we have, I mean, all of them. So I'm not going to name, but all these, just the relationships with the societies, that whole stigmata, conflict of interest, the walls have been broken down. And this was an industry sponsored trial. And just industry is, we need each other. And I just want to thank them all because we couldn't do what we do without them. And the relationships, you're going to see this, Jacob, as you're going, well, you see it with Doug, but just the, those relationships and we can advance because of them and vice versa. So it's a shout out to all of them. Don't need to give individual names. You all know who you are, but thank you all for all you've done for us because it's super helpful. I agree completely. It's super helpful and it's it's a lot of fun collaborating with people who are just as invested in pushing things forward and uh, especially companies who are very receptive to the physician standpoint. And a lot of the ones we work with in the IO world, they really defer to the expertise of the problems that interventional radiologists are coming up to on a daily basis and helping developing platforms that are better geared towards the problem at hand. And just a quick tangent company that we've used some of their products for, this is more on a kyphoplasty side, but they've had just the other night, saw a new redone needle, just very simple kyphoplasty needle. This is the first one I've used that has a flat top on it. So flat top for being hit with a flat mallet, whereas you notice that most of them have a convex top. And I always thought, why is that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And so finally, some interventional radiologist, you can guess who, said, hey, why don't we have two flat surfaces to hit together? And then finally got that. And so to have companies who will listen to that and say, yeah, it's a good idea. Why haven't we done that? You know, And that's just kind of a simple microcosm. I think that is generally how we work with, because with all the industry sponsors who are really involved in, for example, the IO stuff, those small incremental changes are what is going to make it possible to do the robotic guidance procedures in the OBL in 10 years. So I agree with you completely, Dr. Jennings, and really appreciative of a lot of the work that those companies, as well as SIO, obviously we're all major fans here and looking forward to a really fantastic meeting in January. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate always talking with you. I know we talk a lot offline, but look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Jennings. And I'll put you on the schedule for the selfie. I will hunt you down at SIO (laughs) and everyone can put me on that and, and hunt me down as well. And we'll look forward to seeing you there. And with that, Dr. Jennings, thanks so much for your time. Look forward to seeing you in a few short weeks here. And to our listeners, we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, 
and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvi Espiritu and Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Roy Kennebrew. Thanks again and see you next time.